We're going to be looking at John 14, verses 1 through 7 this morning. It'll be found in your pew Bible on page 1,675. And as you turn there, I'd like to remind you and then to inform anyone who is visiting this morning that we've been in the midst of what's being called Explore God Chicago, where over a thousand churches in the Chicago area are joining together to talk about these seven big questions. Now, they're posed as questions that people who are curious about the religion of Christianity uh, may ask about what the Bible teaches. Uh, But as I've often been saying, I believe these are questions that many of us who do believe in Christianity, who have uh, a true faith, continue to ponder or wonder and maybe, hopefully, Uh, These questions and these discussions and these sermons will help you to see that the church is not a place where you are not allowed to have doubts and questions, but that we go to the Word of God together and wrestle with those questions and look at what God's Word has to tell us about that. Today we're looking at the question, is Christianity too narrow? We're reading John 14, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Jesus speaking. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms... If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way. And the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. As for the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Imagine with me for a moment that you are a witness to a house fire. A fire is burning up pretty quickly. And you see that somebody is stuck up on the upper floor of this house. And the fireman pulls up. They extend their ladder out to where this man is standing in a window on the upper floor. And can you imagine for a moment that this man, who's in the midst of burning flames, beginning to deal with the health issues of smoke inhalation, would say to the fireman, how dare you only provide me one way? I'd like options here.
That's really the question that we're dealing with this morning. Is Christianity too narrow? It's a question that arises in the midst of a pluralistic culture and society, a postmodern culture and society that says, you know, you have your truth, I have my truth, we all have our own truth. Maybe many of you have seen those wonderful bumper stickers on the back of cars, coexist, and it's all the different symbols of the religion. But to be honest, it's not politically correct to say that you are the one which knows and possesses what is truly true these days. I could list many of an example of big preachers who have been asked to come on news shows and oftentimes this is a gotcha question for them. Well, do you believe that Christianity is the only way to God? Let me just let that sit there for a moment. Because there is a very real sense that you feel that in answering that question, you may be misunderstood as being prideful, arrogant, bigoted. But what I want us to understand today is that this question does not come to us in a neutral sense. That everyone has a particular worldview and they are living that worldview out. And that includes Christians. Now this is what you need to understand. When you as a Christian are answering the question, is Christianity too narrow? You are asked to answer the question from in the midst of your worldview. What do I mean by that? I mean... That you're not asking, you're not answering that question from a neutral ground, whereas to say we have a bunch of different options of what truth we should choose, and you just happen to think that Christianity is the one that makes the most sense. You are answering that question from a spirit-renewed understanding that when the Bible says, in the beginning, God, that it's true. That God created the universe, that there's only one God, that God sent his son, that there's only one Christ, and that God gave us his word, and there's only one word. But here is where we need to make sure we understand it rightly. That is to say that Christianity is as exclusive and inclusive as Christ. Now, I'm going to try to explain that as we go along, okay? Christianity is as exclusive, which excludes by its very nature, and as inclusive as Christ. And in order to do this, I'm going to look at this in two parts. We're going to talk about the exclusive nature 
of Christianity. And we're going to look at John 14 as we talk about that. Then we're going to turn and we're going to look at the inclusive nature of Christianity. All right, so in this passage that we looked at, John chapter 14, Christ is comforting his disciples. He's just washed their feet in the upper room. He's predicted his betrayal by Judas and told Judas to go on and do what it is that he needs to do. He just informed Peter that Peter would soon deny him. And with all this talk that Christ has about being taken, dying, these disciples were shook. Their infant faith couldn't grasp the plan of redemption. They still held to a shallow view of Christ's kingdom and the way he would accomplish it and bring it about in this world. The Messiah is supposed to be the king of Israel. He's supposed to reign from his throne in Jerusalem. He's supposed to be a political leader whose kingdom will be forever established upon the earth. What's this about dying? How does Christ assure his disciples before he goes to the cross? And this is where we understand the exclusive nature of Christianity. The first thing that Christ says to his disciples is that he commands them to trust in God and to trust also in him. This ties the Father and the Son together, as John has often done in his gospel. We've been told that Jesus speaks the word of God, is himself the word of God, and performs the acts of God. Should Christ then not also be trusted like God? See, this is why that question is not neutral. Because you being asked, is Christianity too narrow as a believer? It has been revealed to you that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, second person of the Holy Trinity, forever existing throughout time, who is intricately a part of your creation, and Jesus himself has spoken the words, I am the gate. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. His disciples have said, there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Paul the passage and Acts at the Areopagus that we looked at earlier in the series said, There once was a time when God overlooked this ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And he has shown this by making one particular man who was raised from the dead judge. Christ is to be trusted like God because he is God. The question that the disciples are dealing with here is, how could it possibly be a good thing for Jesus to leave his disciples? And he begins to tell them, he's going away to prepare a place for them so that he can come back and get them and bring them to be with him where he is. Therefore, the hope and the comfort that Jesus' disciples are to have is based upon the kingdom of God as realized in the perfect work of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They are to find comfort in knowing that Christ is preparing a place for them in heaven. Reminds me of that song that I used to sing when I was a little kid. My father's house, 
It's a big, big house. Lots and lots of, I won't even torture you with that. Where we could play football. That was always the one I remembered. I was like, okay, playing football. They are to find comfort in knowing that Christ is preparing a place for them. That in Christ there is now hope for a world that is to come. The new heavens and the new earth of which heaven is only a taste. They will soon begin to experience the breaking in of the new heavens and the new earth when the Holy Spirit has poured out on them the Pentecost. In such a way that Paul could say, you are now new creations, new creatures. Where Jesus could say, you now possess present eternal life. What's in focus here is not the lavishness of the rooms in heaven, nor whether there'll be a big backyard where we can play football, or the size of the rooms. What's in focus here is the quantity. There's plenty of rooms for all of Christ's disciples to join him where he is going. And he tells them, he assures them, that they know the place. They know the way to the place where he is going. Ooh, but here comes Thomas. <clears throat> Doubting Thomas. This man, he gets kind of a bad rep, you know, because of his disbelief in, in Christ's resurrection. But he's often a character in John's gospel who has the confidence to speak out loud what all the other disciples are actually thinking. Right? You know that person? It's like, some of us are like, we're not going to say anything. But yeah, we were thinking that. It's almost as if Thomas understood Jesus in the most crass, natural way. It's almost like Thomas is asking for the address so he can plug it into his Google Maps application. I mean, give me some specific directions to this place, Jesus. I don't know where, where you're going. So how could we possibly know the way to where you're going? And then Jesus' answer, of course, becomes a popular saying among Christians. John chapter 14, verse 6 is kind of like John chapter 3, verse 16, and some of those other verses that are often plastered on greeting cards, devotionals. But it is the case often that when something becomes popularized, can often become misunderstood. You see, Jesus tells them that they know the way because they know him. And he is the way. He is the way. It's interesting. If you look at marriage customs in this time, you would notice that after a proposal was made, 
The groom would often go back to his father's house. And he would build a room onto his father's house throughout the betrothal period. He would be preparing this room to bring his wife home to. And Jesus here uses much the same language. Almost as if to say, he wants them to understand that this is like the wedding feast of the Lamb. That this is Christ promising a place for his church, the bride. And he says, the way that you are to come to the Father is by me. It's more than simply a mental ascent of faith. It's spiritual union with Christ. That we are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. That by our spirit wrought union with Christ, we have come to the Father. But here, Christ says, I am a way and a truth and a life. Is that what he says? Mm. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. It's interesting to consider the fact that as the Christians began to go out from Jerusalem and began to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, they were first called by the name, the way. What is Guiding this sentence, because Thomas asked, what is the way? Is the word way? Christ is the way because he is the truth and the life. He is the revelation of the Father, the perfect expression of who God is. He is the embodiment of truth because he in his death and resurrection gives life to all who believe in him. He is the life. He is the way because he is the truth and the life. You see, this is the the narrowness of Christianity. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Christ proclaims that he is the only way to the truth, but this is not unique to Christianity. Muslims believe that their way is the only way. Buddhists believe that the only way to be rid of desire is to follow their path. Any, any ultimate truth claim, worldview, is exclusive by its very nature. Christianity, like all other truth claims, proclaimed by its 
very nature that other so-called truths are in fact lies. If Christ is the only way to the Father, there is no other way to the Father but by Him. This is not something Christians should express a prideful or arrogant attitude about. This is something that we proclaim because God Himself has revealed it to us in His Word. And we say it like this. Is Jesus the only way to the Father? Yes. But I didn't say that. Jesus did. So you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with the Jesus of the Scriptures. You have a problem with Jesus of Scriptures. But the question we're answering today is, is more specific than that, isn't it? It doesn't ask if Christianity is narrow. We've determined that's the case. There's an exclusive nature to Christianity. But it asks if it's too narrow. To that aspect, I move next. Often, when we speak of the exclusive nature of Christianity, people point to the scripture passage in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says these infamous words. Maybe you are familiar with them. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. This is a passage that's often preached like this. Ooh, you better be scared, because if you aren't scared, you need to realize that the Bible itself says not very many people are going to be saved. In fact, most of you here this morning probably aren't saved. I was acting like somebody else. I'm not actually saying that, okay? But is that really what is being said here? How can we understand the words of Christ here on the Sermon on the Mount as he's speaking to a Jewish audience in a way that doesn't contradict the Scripture passages that tell us of the multitudes in white robes who will stand before the throne of God worshiping Him? See, I tend to think that the scriptures are very promising about the inclusive nature of Christ, not in the sense that someone can be saved without knowing that they're being saved by Christ, which is an impossibility for only those who have heard the gospel and, and, and grasp onto its truth in true spiritual faith can be saved, but inclusive in the sense of I think there's going to be a lot of redeemed people at the end of time in history. A lot of redeemed people. So what is Christ saying here then? He himself is the gate, the narrow gate. 
He is the only way to salvation. We've discussed that. We've determined that. Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. Only a few find it. It's important that we keep in mind that Christ here is speaking to his people, the Jews. And it's important that we understand that because the scriptures continue to go on and tell us that following Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, that the Jews began to reject the gospel largely. Insomuch that Paul could write in Romans 9 that he wished that he himself could be accursed for the sake of his brethren. That Paul would write Romans 9, 10, 11 as simply a struggling theological conversation as to say that if Christ is the Messiah of the Jewish people, how come the Jews don't believe? Few there be that find it amongst his people. But their hearts were hardened to the truth of the gospel. But there is this marvelous and wonderful reality that comes to expression in the New Testament. You see, if you are offended by the exclusive nature of Christianity, then you should read the first part of the Christian Bible. How exclusive is Noah and his family and everyone else dies? How exclusive is Abraham and his family? They're the ones that are promised the blessings of the covenant. How exclusive is it for the God of the universe to say, I only choose that nation, Israel. Nobody else. Israel is my chosen. But how does that express the inclusive nature Christ. That is to say, because when Christ came, he showed that the real reason that God was working through all that history, that he was working through Noah, Abraham, Moses, the people of Israel, was to bring into this world a Messiah who would redeem people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Where the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ would not be limited to ethnic Israel, but would be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. That we could read in Revelation chapter 7, this beautiful image of the church of God, of the redeemed, of the lamb that was slain. Revelation chapter 7 in ver- uh, on page 1920. Starting in verse 9, 1921. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. That no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The love of God is exclusive and that he will only receive it through Christ whom he sent to die for the sake of his people. But the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ is so inclusive that he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And I am personally of the mind that as this age comes to a close, we will see many ethnic Jews come to Christ. Christianity is only as exclusive and inclusive Christ, Christ who came and died for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, that whosoever would believe in him shall have eternal life. That is the truth of the gospel. And this is not something to be ashamed of, people of God. This is something that should motivate us. This is why we send missionaries. This is why we pray for those who are bringing the gospel to persecuted churches in in China. This is why we pray for faithful seminaries in other countries. This is why we pray for the spread of the gospel in countries and in peoples that do not know the gospel because Christ is the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. Amen. Lord, we thank You for Your Word which tells us very clearly that You in all your infinite wisdom have chosen one way to salvation, one way to redemption. And that way is Christ himself. It is by blood-bought, spirit-wrought union with Christ. It is by an expression of true faith in the perfect work of Christ, that we come to know you and to be with you forever. But we are comforted 
and encouraged by the knowledge, Father, that your love wrapped its arms around the entire world in such a way that there will be on that day brothers and sisters from all over the world who speak different languages, who bring different wonderful and beautiful cultural realities, who help us to see the fullness, the inclusiveness of the gospel of Christ. We ask that we may know both that Christ is the only way, but that in Christ you have saved so many from all over the world. And help us, Lord, to be a part of that story of redemption. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.